and I'm excited to be here. My name is Justin. For those of you that uh, don't know me, uh, thank you all for coming this morning. Uh, we are a new church here in Bay Ridge, and uh, we are just excited about what God is doing. We are really big on three things, community, discipleship, and creativity. Uh, if you don't know what some of those words mean or you are interested in how that pertains to church, you can check out our website. Uh, we have a little blurb on each of those things, zion.myc. Um, I'm just going to do shameless plugs for now on for the rest of the service. Uh, and you can, you can do a lot of things on the website. You can join our online community. No, I'm kidding. All right, but you can. Uh, but today, I'm really excited. We are in a series in Acts. And what we wanted to do is we, as we're starting this new church here uh, in Bay Ridge, we wanted to look at what did the first church look like. And so the first two weeks, we had like a, a two-week mini-series uh, where we talked about the foundation of the church. What is the cornerstone? What is the church built on? This thing that over the past couple of thousand years has become this sprawling relationship with God that is in every country, in every tongue, all over the world. How did this begin? What is its foundation? That's what we talked about the past two weeks. So the first week we talked about the ascension of Christ. We looked at Acts 1. And then we talked about the last week, um, the descension of the Holy Spirit. Because Christ had said, when I go into heaven, um, I'm going to send a helper or the Spirit of God who would empower all believers to then do the things that the church is supposed to do. And that brings us into what we're going to be talking about now, is how the church began to expand. So we're going to be looking at six things over the next six weeks that the church did to begin to expand. And almost every single week at the end of this, we're going to read that the church grew. And so what was it that they did that they began to grow at this extraordinary rate? I mean, they were multiplying. There was no addition happening here. There was multiplication happening here. You guys remember that? Like five times two instead of five plus two? It's a bigger deal. And so you'll learn to laugh at my jokes by the end of the service, hopefully. Um, but so, so last week, the spirit comes down and people freak out, right? They're perplexed and amazed. Some people, they, because they, what happens is the disciples, they're praying. There's 120 of them. They're praying, and all of a sudden, the, the Spirit of God comes down, and they start praying in other languages, languages they never learned before. And people from Rome start hearing them praying Latin. Greeks start hearing them praying Greek. And all over the world, there was this, this feast of Pentecost that was happening. So there were Jewish people that had come from all over the world to celebrate this feast. And so they spoke all these different languages. And here is 120 Galileans. That means they had their own dialect of Hebrew. They start praying and they start praying and the spirit descends. And then all of a sudden everybody says, hey, I hear them praying in my language. Like what's going on here? These are kind of, these are uneducated Galilean people. Like why are, why do we all, and then everybody kind of starts talking like you hear them in your language too. And then some people look at this and they say, oh, these guys are crazy, right? They they must be drunk, right? Because why else would at like two in the afternoon people be praying, first of all, but, you know, that was a Jewish thing. They would pray throughout the day. But then they start praying in all these other languages that they shouldn't even know. So some people chalk it off. Uh, uh, 
they've been drinking that new wine, you know, in, in the middle of the day. And uh, you know what happens when you get on that new stuff. Yeah, you start, you start doing what these guys are doing. Uh, and so right after this happens, right after they get accused of drinking, uh, of basically being drunk and, and taking a little too much of the wine, right? I know everybody's like, oh, wine's good for you, and my doctor told me I can have a glass a day, but why does that glass turn into 10 glasses a day? That's the real question right there. So that's what they were, I, I won't even hit on that right now. I felt, I felt some oohs right there, but, but that's what they thought the disciples had done. They thought they were crazy, a lot of people. And, you know, that happens a lot of times. You know, spirit comes down. If you're the first time here and, you, you know, you're hearing us worship, you're like, these people are crazy. Like, what are they doing? Why? They, it's too early to be excited. It's a Sunday, right? Like, go home. No. <laughs> exactly. And so Peter then stands up, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the proclamation. I always love when I forget to put my timer on because... I, that means I add, I add like five extra minutes to my sermon since I started it five minutes late. And so Peter stands up right after they're accused of drinking new wine. And he starts to dialogue. And this is what he said. We're going to read verses 14 to 21. And, and what we're talking about today is proclamation. Proclamation of the gospel. So right after the spirit descends, this is literally the moment after we're picking up right where we left off last week. And we're going to read the first sermon, really, in the New Testament after the ascension of Christ. And it comes from Peter the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And so in verse 14, it starts off, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. Since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be. So he starts quoting Joel right here, the prophet. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above. And signs on earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter stands up and he says, hey guys, we're not drunk, I promise. But here is what is happening and so he goes back to the Old Testament and the prophet Joel, and he says, this is what Joel said that was going to happen. And I want to explain to you right now, he's speaking to the people that think they're crazy, and he says, I want to explain to you what is happening through a reference that everybody here would understand, because they knew their Old Testament, they knew their scripture. And so he says, look at what Joel prophesied. Because what Joel said was coming, what our fathers and their fathers were waiting for, this, you are in the moment right now. History is being made. Prophecy is coming true. And he said, God announced 
that there would be a time where he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. So this is Q and a pastor, they, they say, what does all mean? It means all. <laughs> That's right, thank you guys, appreciate it. Right, if we go in the Greek, it means all. Right, God was sending his spirit on earth. Because what he was doing was he was creating a new thing where he was saying, Israel have been my, they've been my people. They, they stayed with me when everybody else turned away from me and I made promises to them. But it was foreseen that there would be a time when I wouldn't be somebody that was just for one people on earth, but I would be a God who would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then he begins to say on men, on women, on people, even the servants or the slaves. Because something that you learn about God is he was breaking gender barriers before it was cool. He was breaking economic, socio-political barriers before it was cool. Before it was a thing for people to march and say, give me my rights, God was saying, I am breaking the barriers that men have set up on earth. And I am pouring out my spirit on all flesh. This may be a patriarchal society, but God is saying, I'm bypassing culture, I'm bypassing the familia structure, I'm bypassing the economics. Like, even though you thought your slaves weren't good enough for the Almighty, I'm bypassing what you think should happen. And I'm saying on men, on women, on children, on servants, I'm coming for them. For all of them, so that what? All that call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. See, so much time we get caught up with the structures and the institutions of our world. But yet God is bypassing that. His justice is not for a few, it's for all. He looks at the poor and the downtrodden, and he lifts them up. Right? In a, in a time when there were only certain things that certain people could do, this was a big thing, that the Spirit of God was for every person he was pouring it on. And God also announced that he was in the second part, that he was bringing judgment. See, Christians, we don't like to talk about this a lot anymore, the judgment of God. I like talking about the judgment of God. I'm a very judgmental person, so I like talking about the judgment of God. Right? If you've ever heard of Myers-Briggs, like, I am what's called an INTJ. And you know what that J stands for at the end? Judgmental. So, like, don't, don't come to me with that nonsense of don't judge me because I will judge you. I'm judging you right now based on if you're laughing or not. It's all right, I can't see anybody. These lights are just like in my eyes. But we don't, we don't like to talk about the, the judgment of God anymore. Because we, you know, we like to do our thing. 
And if, I, if someone calls me out on doing my thing, well, screw you. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Don't talk about my thing, I won't talk about your thing. But in the second part here, it's like, what is all this, this blood and fire and this vapor and this darkness and, and all this stuff that's happening? It signifies the judgment of God. God was bringing salvation, but he was also bringing a judgment. But this judgment wasn't just to say, hey, you did wrong, you're awful, and I'll talk to you later. Right? That's what we do as people. It's just like we look at you and we say, well, that was stupid. Like You deserve what you got, you moron. And then we just walk away from the person. Like We rip them a new one. It's like I just stabbed you in the heart, and then I'm going to go back and do my own thing. That's why we hate judgmental people. But what God does is he brings judgment that leads to repentance. See, his judgment for us is so that we can come back to him and say, Father, I'm turning away from these things that have brought sin in my life. I'm turning away from these things that have brought shame, have, have brought the, 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 the things that, the disconnection between me and you. See, God's judgment isn't just to say you're a bad person and you're wrong. God's judgment is so that we turn from the ways of our life and look to him and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry about that. See, in the context of Joel, was Joel, his prophecy towards Israel was he was declaring the judgment of God on Israel so that they would repent and turn towards him. And what Peter does is he uses this as his intro. He says, no, guys, we're not drunk. We've read about this. We know that this day was coming. And so now that I let you, knew, I let you know right now what has come, I let you know what the, the times that we're living in, the time that literally we've talked about this, we've dreamed about this, and we've had for generations our parents have wanted to be in this moment. We're in this moment right now. And then he moves on. And he begins to get into the body of his message. And so we're going to start in verse 22. We're going to read verse 22 to 36. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says by him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out all this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. We have just listened to the first sermon in the New Testament outside of Christ. And I want us to understand how the proclamation of the gospel was done. I think it's essential for us in the life of the church to know the, what, what is it that the apostles said when they went up to somebody? What is it that they heard proclaimed? How did, what, was there any patterns? What did they talk about? What did they say? What was the reaction of people? It's important that we understand this. I think, one, because as a church, it's not just a pastor's job to proclaim the truth. Like, we have a responsibility as well that when we hear the good news, Jesus said that we would be his witnesses, the mission of the church, making disciples and baptizing all who believe. And so there's this format that we see throughout Acts and how the apostles proclaim the gospel. And they follow generally these four ways. They're not always in order, but they always hit on these things. The first thing is they announced that the age of fulfillment has come. They let the people know that they're preaching to, that, hey, guess what? Everything you've been waiting for has come. There's an account of the ministry, death, and triumph of Jesus. They start quoting the Old Testament. If you're wondering, like, who is David? Who is Joel? What are these people that they keep quoting? That's the Old Testament. And then at the end... There's a call to repentance. And so the first thing, the announcement of the age of the fulfillment that it has come, this was our intro. This is what, this is what Peter talked about. See, he was speaking to a crowd that they knew, they knew the scripture. They knew the, the, the Torah. They knew... The laws of Moses, they knew the prophets. These were not like when, when Peter is quoting Joel, when Peter is quoting the Psalms, this is a context where these people understand exactly what he's saying. So when he starts off and he quotes Joel and he says, this is what has just happened right here. We're not crazy. We're not drunk. You know, we're, we're not off our rocker. What's happening is the age of fulfillment has come. And I, I think of it like this for us Christians. It's, it's basically if, if you um, grew up in the 90s in church, then you always heard of the second coming of Jesus. Like this was, I feel like we just heard about this all the time. Like in the 80s and the 90s in church, it was always like, hey, Jesus is coming soon. Like I read this book series called Left Behind when I was a kid. <laughs> 
And I was in fear that one day I was going to wake up and I was going to go to my parents' room because I slept in and nobody woke me up. And I was just going to see their clothes in the bed and I was going to say, God, why'd you take them and you left me? Like I was going to go outside to the store and you just see clothes everywhere because apparently you can't take clothes to heaven. And so people's bodies were just taken up and, and all their stuff was left all over. And the aftermath was just all the deplorables like me was left on earth. And just fire and the devil was going to come and he was just going to kill me and he was going to kill everybody. And it was just like this whole mess was going to happen. Right? And like that was, man, that, that was my childhood right there. Of just fear of the second coming. Like Jesus was going to come. I had to repent like every minute like if I did something. Because I don't want the rapture to come. If the rapture comes, then I'm done for. Like, there's no going back to heaven after the rapture. Sorry, guys. And so that's kind of like, imagine the rapture happens, and then I stand out and it's like, oh, we all heard this is going to happen, and we all kind of, you know, we're all here. Sorry. Like, we understand that. And so that, Peter's doing that in a kind of joyful way because he's saying, hey, we were all waiting for this to happen, but this is the new age of the Spirit of God coming. He's pouring himself on all flesh. What you have been waiting for, the time that you have been preparing for, we are living in that season today. And the second thing he talks about is account of the ministry, death, and triumph of Jesus. Peter reflects on a few things. These are great things for us to reflect on. Peter reflects on the signs and wonders done. Right, Jesus had just ascended into heaven, so most of Israel knew about this guy, especially in Jerusalem. He made a ruckus. I mean, somebody goes around raising the dead, spitting in people's eyes that have never seen before, and then, you know, having vision all of a sudden, like people who are paralyzed, getting up and walking for the first time. Like, the word is going to travel about this guy. So Peter talks about, you know the signs and the wonders that were done by him. We sang that song, Miracles, and sometimes we just need to remember that God still performs signs and wonders. He's still performing miracles today. Like the miracles may be different than you think, right? Like if I got a million dollars today, I could, you know, that would be a miracle. And that's most of the time the miracles that we're praying for. But I want to I wanna shift our mind in the signs and the wonders and the miracles that God does. Because the array of what God does in our life is so profound and so amazing. He lifts up the desperate. Right? If we look at the signs and the wonders that Jesus did, people who were shunned by society, he gave them hope. He forgave their sins. I mean, that was, that blew people away. You know, they tried stoning him for saying things like this. When he would heal somebody, he would say, your sins are forgiven. And they would say, who is this man that can forgive sins? That is a sign and wonder. So every day we can reflect on the miracle of God of the forgiveness of sins. That we can enter in boldly before the throne of grace. Because God is not looking at our sin. He's not looking at our lives, but literally is looking at us through the lens and sacrifice of his son. And we can worship and reflect on that day by day knowing 
that there has been a miracle that has happened in my life that I will not be judged on account of my sin, but on Christ, and he was perfect. Peter reflects on the crucifixion. He says, you gave up this man so that lawless men killed him. The, the suffering, the death of Christ, the impact, the power, the meaning behind that. That he went through this in obedience to God because God had a plan for reconciliation with his love, us. Peter talks about the resurrection says that he loosed the pangs of death. I love that line. I wish I could sing, because at this moment I'd be like, and death could not hold me. You don't want to hear me sing, I'm sorry. That was like the best I could do without you crying and, and just walking out. Unfortunately, John has to hear me sing every Sunday because he stands next to me. I'm like, I feel bad if he's ever recording, because if my voice ever like kind of gets on there, he's just going to be like, crap, I got to delete all this. <laughs> But death could not hold him down. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought not only a spiritual but a physical death into the world. This sin nature that all of us were then born into because of their sin. But Jesus, the Bible describes him as a second Adam. One that would restore the thing that was lost in the first. And because of that, he had to conquer the very thing that had conquered Adam, which was death. And so the grave could not hold him down. He was not corrupted, and he rose from the dead. And Peter says, we were all witnesses to this fact, 120 people. That is literally one of the strongest arguments for the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Because there were hundreds of people that saw him, not just a crazy three or four people. You know, it wasn't one person that had a vision and then an entire religious system was built on that. There were hundreds of people that collaborated and cooperated each other's stories that saw the same thing, the same man rise and ascend into heaven. This was not a fairy tale that was taught or a legend that was passed down. It was before their very eyes. And if it did not happen... There would have been people in this 120 that would have blew up their spot, no doubt. In fact, Luke's entire argument for Acts is, I have thoroughly checked the eyewitnesses that have seen this happen, and here is their account. This is not a fairy tale. I want to give you the truth of what is happening. See, essential to the proclamation of the gospel is the works of Christ on earth. In human form. Christ's life, his life from birth to his death to his resurrection is central to our relationship with God. That's literally the foundation of our faith. Paul says of the resurrection, if this never happened, then there's no point in our faith. And then at the end, what does Peter do? There's a call to repentance, and that's what I want to read now. In verse, starting in verse 37 to 40. It says, now when they heard this, 
they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Man, a lot of times the gospel has been boiled down to this thing that we just feel good at the end of the day. And as, as long as I keep on feeling good, I'm going to keep on doing this Christian thing. But what is the very reaction of these people when Peter finishes proclaiming the gospel? It says that they were cut to the heart. He called them murderers. said this this man god you had a part in his death but guess what all he calls to himself can be saved cuz there's forgiveness of sins for all who call See, the gospel is also not only hope for our future, but it's an indictment against our very soul. That for the times that we have sinned, the times that we have turned our back, we played a role in the crucifixion of Jesus. For these very things, he died. The reason why there needs to be a cut, the reason why there needs to be an indictment, because a true understanding and a true following of the gospel not only gives you hope for your future, it tells you, I have never been loved more than I am loved right now, but it also tells me I have never been more evil. Because what it does is it opens up your eyes to the things that you have done. God pronounces judgment, but then he gives opportunity for repentance. He says, yes, you have been wrong. Yes, you have done bad things. You may look at your life and you say, God could never forgive someone like this. There may be things that you have never told anybody before. That you would look at your heart and you would say, I'm never telling anybody this. And my relationship with God, well, we don't touch this because well, I don't think that he could ever get past this. God is saying, you have never been loved more than you are now. But he's not turning a blind eye to the things that we have done. But what he says as he uses this word, Peter says, repent. And I love that word. 
Because repentance is a turning away. It's a recognition of who you are. And you're saying to God, it's time to be different. It's time to walk away from the life I used to live. Repentance is an ongoing issue in our heart. That's my shut up soon bell. <laughs> Repentance is an issue in our heart. And what it says to us is this. I look at my life. And it's very easy for me to look in the mirror and see me for the things that I did wrong. For most of my life, when I would look in the mirror, I would look in the mirror and I would see a porn addict. I would see an insecure, defensive little boy who was never going to grow up. I would see somebody who is constantly mischievous, lying, and lustful. I would see a boy, even when I was older, I would still see a boy who didn't know how to treat women as friends and as sisters. And it was easy for me to look in the mirror and see all of these things. And when I responded to the gospel, Jesus looked at my heart and he said, yeah, Justin, you've been lustful. Yeah, you're insecure. Yeah, you can't be trusted alone. I still remember those moments in my life where I realized Christ made a way of repentance for me. That his death, his triumph over the cross, it literally paved a way for me to turn around and repent from these things that put him there in the first place. That when I looked at myself in the mirror every morning, I didn't have to see this little insecure boy that couldn't control himself, but literally his spirit came down and brought things like self-control, like patience, like love. And these were things that I can turn to now in my life. That I didn't have to be this way anymore. And so every morning I am cut to the heart by the gospel. But I am so overjoyed by the ability to repent. And say, Father, thank you that you forgive. And by your blood I am white as snow. 
Because it's so easy for us sometimes to get stuck in that guilt and in that shame. And I'm telling you, if you stay there, then you're not listening to the same gospel that I am. Yes, he judges us. Yes, he cuts us. But at the end of the day, he fixes and he shapes and he mends and he heals. And I can look in that mirror the next morning and know that I am not the same person that I was yesterday because he had triumph over death. It did not hold him down. It says he loosed the pangs of death. And because of that, I am able to turn away from this boy that I always thought I'd be. And in verse 41, it gives us the outcome of the proclamation of the gospel. It says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power unto salvation. The gospel is the power unto salvation. When there is proclamation of the gospel, when we open up our mouths, it's, it's so easy to get caught up and say, man, I really need to say these perfect things, and I need to say the right thing, and I need to have a lot of wisdom, and you know, I just can't say it like that guy or that girl, because they say it really nice, and they're eloquent, but at the end of the day, when we proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim what Jesus did, when we proclaim his judgment and his repent repentance, it says that is the power unto salvation. It doesn't it doesn't rest on my words. It doesn't rest on my eloquence. It doesn't rest on how good I am. It doesn't rest on how bad I am. It rests on its own power and its own understanding that the gospel is what brings salvation. And when we proclaim this thing, the evidence, the outcome will be Repentance, it will be baptism, and it will be the growth of the church. And I want to leave us today with this thought. That Father, the gospel is the power unto salvation. When we're sitting in our room and we're thinking, man, I heard what Justin said, but I can't seem to get over this, or I can't seem to turn away from this, or I, I, I want to do the right thing, but I'm trying everything that I can, and that's where you need to understand there's something going wrong. We can try until we're blue in the face. I'm telling you, I tried every formula. I tried everything anybody ever told me. I did everything that you can possibly do. But nothing worked until I finally rested and realized and said, God, it's the power of the gospel. That's going to bring me salvation in my life. 
And so now when I sit in my room and I worship, I can come before the presence of God, not because I had a good day or a bad day, but because the gospel allows me entrance into his presence. I can now have communion with Lord Almighty, not because I've been perfect this week or I had the most amazing past or I'm a preacher or I'm a pastor. It's because the gospel is the power unto salvation. It is not on my merit that I can do what I do and turn away like I do.